Good morning. This is uh, lesson 11 in our study. It is the first lesson that we are endeavoring to deal with uh, Second Thessalonians. And I already have a confession to you. As you know, I am uh, known to change not only titles, but lengths of passages. People have encouraged me to slow down, and I have. Um, And so we'll be dealing with verses 1 through 4 rather than verses 1 through 12 this morning. If you see on your screen the pictures of uh, a couple of pictures of a couple of years ago, as you will in just a second, uh, we made a trip to uh, Alaska with Bill and Marilyn McRae. That was one of our happy stops. And I'm sure some of you have, have done the same. And then there's a shot there, I think, of the mountains that everybody that's been on that cruise has seen. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's for us probably the trip of a lifetime, and undoubtedly we will probably never do it again. But I will tell you one thing. It is not reality. A cruise ship is not reality, folks. And, and if you haven't got that down, then you, you better come to terms with it. One year later, we went on our vacation and went to Washington State, and it was within days that my father had a major stroke. And uh, then I spent uh, more than a week uh, sitting at his side in the hospital And I have to tell you, that is closer to reality than a cruise ship. Uh, I I know it's wonderful to have all those people around who pick up after you. You don't have to take your trays anywhere. They'd almost feed you if you let them. But that isn't real. And I want to tell you something else. It isn't even a picture of heaven. It's not really what heaven will be like. We will not be sitting down with everybody serving us. As I understand heaven, heaven is a place where we will be delightfully serving God. So all I'm saying is join us, take your cruise. Just don't let it warp your life, folks. Accept it for what it is in terms of of the exception uh, to what life is like. I think many Christians in America view the Christian life as a cruise. I think that we, because of our circumstances, because we, uh, because of our affluence, because of the ease of life that we have had, we've been on a cruise. And I have to tell you that it takes a book like Thessalonians, first or second, to wake me up to the reality of what real Christian living is like. Now, I don't begrudge the fact that we haven't been living under persecution, but I am simply telling you it is not the norm. And so many people around the world, when they would read First and Second Thessalonians and they would read of the adversity and the persecution and the suffering, they would shake their heads, they would nod their heads because they know what it means. They've experienced it in their lives. We read this like we're reading a book about a foreign land. It just really doesn't resonate the way it would to, to certain people. And so when we come to the, the book of, of Second Thessalonians, I really want to press, I guess, that button, and that is we need a reality check. 
And Thessalonians does it for us. And uh, it tells us what the real world is like. And it probably tells us what our future is like, perhaps in the, in the near term. So let's look at, at some of the things. Oh, I might as well tell you right now about this message. I cut it in half this morning. That was for starters. Uh, I took my PowerPoint and stopped it uh, at, at, at uh, halfway through the PowerPoint presentation. And the reason is that I, I had a choice to make. Now, if I were in India, people would be rebuking me for stopping when I will this morning. In fact, I have been rebuked for preaching too short a message. Uh, and brothers would say to me, listen, these people drove for two hours to get here. They didn't come for a 40-minute message. And and people here, you know, hit 40 minutes, man, they're looking to watch this, you know, and thinking about the roast in the oven, and they're just all itchy. A good sermon takes two hours. I'm convinced. I've never been convinced otherwise. And And so the difficulty that I have is how do you get away with that, you know, In America, it is very, very difficult to pull it off. My way of preaching is to try to connect dots. And so while while other people in their preaching may do their work and come to their conclusions, and then they basically just give you the conclusions and don't show you the process, that doesn't seem right to me. It seems to me that preaching ought to tell people how to study God's Word and not just give all the results, so that everybody ought to become a better student. And so if you listen to preaching long enough, hopefully if you listen to mine long enough, you'll say, you know, that guy isn't so good. Well, you knew that early on, but he isn't so good. And if I studied that long and studied that way, I'd come up with the same stuff. That's exactly the way it ought to be. So my dilemma is that when you take a message like this, it takes a certain amount of time to deal with the details to show the particular dots and then to follow those dots in terms of here is the argument of the author and then say, this is the message that Paul has. Then look at other texts and illustrate it or exemplify it and then say, here's where that takes us. Here's the kind of application that ought to flow from that. You can't do it in 40 minutes. And so you have a dilemma to face. And the way I faced this text was, I was ready early this morning. I was ready to say, all right, I'm going to connect the dots this week. And next week, I'll I'll get to the point of saying, what's the impact when Paul has us walk away from this text? Besides just connecting the dots and having some intellectual things take place, how does he want this, this message to hit us between the eyes? How does he want us to emotionally connect with this message How does he want us to think differently and act differently because of this message? And so usually what I do is I hustle my way through the text and then I'm short on time and so I crunch up the application and and that isn't probably ideal. I haven't found the solution other than this this morning. I decided that it would be better to take a short text of Scripture and to uh, deal more with the impact of that text than it would be to take a longer portion of Scripture and stretch out uh, somehow the application. So bear with me. I confess to you folks, that's, that's, uh, that's my way of resolving the preacher's problem, and you'll have to tell me whether it, was, whether it worked or not. So now let's look at the question, is Second Thessalonians a rerun? 
Have you ever, ever noticed that so many programs on television, it seems like they have 10 programs and they replay them about four times a piece all through the year? And so one of the things you want to do is look and say, is this the first time I've seen this or is this the fourth time and I'm not going to look at it again? And so when you start with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you almost feel like you're reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 all over again, don't you? And you say to yourself, whoa, is this a rerun? I would like to suggest to you that it's not. But let's just review for a moment where we have come from in 1 Thessalonians and also Acts chapter 17, which is the account of the birth of the church at Thessalonica. Do you remember that this was the second missionary journey? Paul and Timothy and Silvanus uh, were, were there traveling, and they, uh, you remember the, the dilemma in Acts chapter 16 of the Philippian uh, jail and the, the persecution and suffering that Paul bore there, and then the jailer coming to faith, Paul leaving and eventually ending up in Thessalonica, preaching in the synagogue, and a number of people came to faith. And a number didn't and hardened against the gospel. That led to persecution, and Paul had to be suddenly escorted out of town, uh, leaving the church and not yet being able to return to it. The Thessalonians, as he describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Thessalonians received the message from Paul and his associates with great joy. He told them they would suffer, They did suffer, but in the midst of that affliction, they nevertheless rejoiced because of the salvation they had in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminds them of his conduct amongst them. One of those was that he labored hard in their midst, which will play a lot in terms of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 when he talks to the freeloaders that are there in the church. Paul worked hard. He was, he said, like a father to them in instruction. He was like a mother as well in the gentleness with which he dealt with them. And he also says in in chapter 2 that these believers, these Gentile believers, have a new bond. It is a bond with their Judean Jewish brothers and sisters who have faced persecution from those who don't want the gospel preached to Gentiles. So here are Gentiles who are now in kinship with Jews who are believers because of this bond that you have in the persecution that they have experienced from their own uh, brethren. Paul wanted to return to Thessalonica. He wanted to discern how they were doing. He wanted to teach things that he had not yet taught them. But that was not possible. And Paul tells us the reason is that Satan had thwarted those efforts to return up to that point in time. And so because of his concern, because of his awareness of the tribulation and persecution that the Thessalonians had endured, Paul decided that he would send Timothy and that he would have Timothy go up and see how the church was doing and bring the report back. And you remember that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul joyfully responds with his associates to the news that the church is doing well. The work, the effort, the sacrifice has not been for naught. It has been successful. And they are thriving and continuing to grow in their walk with the Lord Jesus. And Paul prays that they would continue to do that. In chapter 4, 
Paul moves into his section on sanctification. And he says that we ought to be living, they ought to be living, and we too, very different lives. And so he talks about sanctification in this very immoral city taking the shape of sexual morality. That's what sanctification will look like in this dimension of their life is is a, a new kind of sexual morality. And then he also talks about the social ethic, if you would, where those who have been sanctified are those who begin to contribute to, as it were, their environment, their society, not take from it. It's a little bit of a, of a variation of the theme from Ephesians 4. Let him who stole steal no more, but let him labor with his own hands that he may have to give to those who are in need. There is a sense in which a lazy person is stealing money from others if he lives off of their efforts and has the ability to provide for himself. So he deals with that issue, and then he moves to the, the whole matter of the second coming in chapter 4 and verse 13. In 4.13 through 18, he's dealing with the second coming as it relates to dead Christians. It, some have already died, apparently, in Thessalonica, and they expected the return of the Lord to come soon. And so when people began to die and the Lord hadn't come, the issue was, what becomes of those people? Are they somehow second-class citizens? Are they left out of the blessings that will come when our Lord returns? And his answer is no. Actually, they're first in line. When our Lord returns, he will raise those who are dead in him to new life, and they will be rejoined, uh, they will be joined, I should say, with our Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be joined, rejoined with their fellow believers, and they will live forever in the presence of, of our Lord. When you come to chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11, now you're talking about the second coming as it, as it relates to those saints who are alive at the time, uh, or may be alive at the time um, of our Lord's return. At least they are alive now. They're not those who have died, but those who are living. And he says, those saints ought to be watchful. They ought not to be like unbelievers who are drunken, who are living in darkness, who have a false sense of security that all is going well and the judgment will not befall them. Christians ought to be watchful and waiting for the time of our Lord's return and eagerly anticipating that so it does not catch them off guard. Then the rest of chapter 5 uh, has to do with his final instructions of appointing leadership, as I understand it, formally acknowledging leadership, stepping up to the plate and being leaders in their own right as individuals, and then the instructions that are given to the church, rejoice, pray without ceasing, and so on. So that is First uh, Thessalonians. So what's new when we come to Second Thessalonians. Why the need for a second epistle? Well, I think you can assume that everything was not going blissfully well. It would be like First Corinthians as it relates to Second Corinthians, would it not? Paul wrote First Corinthians. He said there were certain problems, divisions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. There was immorality, Christians taking each other to court. And, and that had some effect, but it did not totally 
uh, deal with all the problems. And so 2 Corinthians comes along, and you have to say there's a little more teeth in 2 Corinthians than 1. And Paul calls some of those who have been gathering a following after themselves false apostles, messengers of Satan, and so on. And now it's clear that there are people there within the church who are unbelievers but leading saints astray. So what's changed in 2 Thessalonians? We really don't know how much time has passed, but obviously enough time for Paul to have a feel for things. It seems to me that Timothy made several trips. I'm not quite sure, but I think he was kind of huffing and puffing in the sense that he had to make the trip in chapter 1 where he went to find out about the saints and he came back with a report. That's trip one. I take it that he's probably the one who takes first Thessalonians to them and returns again. And so uh, you've got Timothy going back and forth and, and Paul getting information and intelligence about that. One of the things that I think we see is the whole area of persecution. And it seems to me, and this is somewhat inferential, we would say at least for certain it has not ceased and it certainly does not appear to have diminished. My sense is that persecution against the church and believers has intensified over time, not lessened. Now, that raises some questions. If you were listening to certain television preachers today and you were suffering in the way these Thessalonian saints were suffering, or if you had Job's friends sitting at your side, they would be saying to you, something must be wrong. God wants his people to be happy and prosperous and everything to be going well. What's wrong with your spiritual life? And so as these Thessalonian saints are enduring this persecution, they may begin to ask themselves, Is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with this picture? Why does this continue? Uh, This doesn't look like heaven. And of course it does not. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I believe, is Paul's addressing of that in a way that he has not yet done. And that is, and it's frankly, it's in those core verses that we're saving for next week, but verses 5 through 10, What he's going to say is, you need to understand your present persecution in the light of the second coming. Because your persecution is directly related to the the second coming of Christ and its results. I'm going to cheat and tell you a little bit to think about before next week. In the first place, your persecution at the hand of other people is the evidence that judgment is going to come Judgment needs to come, and judgment is just upon those who are persecuting saints. Their present persecution shows that unbelievers are not just neutrally passive. They are, they will actually begin to be abusive to Christians. And for that, our Lord is going to come and deal with them and repay to them what they've done. Now, we live in an era of political correctness and all the politeness and niceness and whatever. I got to tell you, folks, when push comes to shove and real difficulty comes, you will find that there will be a bonding of true believers together, some falling off at that point, as Jesus says in Matthew 24, but a bonding of true believers 
But there will be a stepping aside of unbelievers, and I want to tell you that unbelievers at that point in time will not be your friends. They will be your enemies, and they will be actively and aggressively bringing about persecution. So I see unbelief and persecution being persecutors as being closely tied together in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. So there is good news for the believer in that God is not only going to give them relief from their suffering, he is going to bring justice to them. Revelation chapter 16. Remember, it talks about how the judgment of God is poured out upon the earth and they praise God and they say they deserve it. There is a sense in which the Christian is relieved and, and in a sense, uh, it feels right that justice has finally been done. Listen, if there was not a hell, there is a lot, there are a lot of wrongs in this world that would never have been made right. And so what Paul is talking about is when Christ comes again, things will be made right. And that ought to be good news to the Christian. Now, the other side of it is that when our Lord comes, he's going to come to be with his saints and to be glorified in and among his saints. That's good news as well. So the second coming is brought to bear on a suffering, persecuted church. And that's why you have chapter 1 devoted, I believe, to the whole issue of persecution as it relates to the second coming. Now, secondly, because Paul has already spoken a great deal about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you not agree? In chapter 1, I think eight times it's referred to there. So if he has spoken about that a great deal, something has changed. What has changed is that people, certain ones, have come along, and they have come along with a modification of that. Now, it's interesting. Remember he talked about not despising prophetic utterances? When Paul comes to describe what he does, it may be that somebody says they have a revelation from God and that the day of the Lord has come. It may be that somebody claims, I received an epistle from Paul and he said the day of the Lord has come. Or somebody else just has Paul's words about that in 1 Thessalonians and says, I know how that's supposed to be interpreted. The end game is there were people saying the day of the Lord had come. Now think about the implications of that. We'll talk about those when we get to chapter 2. So chapter 2 is addressing that area of false teaching pertaining to the day of the Lord and what has been done with it and how Paul will, will show that it indeed is false. Thirdly, Paul has made it clear in 1 Thessalonians that he has worked hard in their midst. He has made it clear to them in chapter 4 that they also ought to be working hard and in effect, in, in a sense, being self-sustaining. He's not rebuking people who are unable to care for themselves, unable to work. He is talking to those who are able to work but unwilling to work and in that sense, going along, hitching themselves to the support of other believers in a way that really is not right. Apparently, his words didn't go far enough because now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he has to come back to that issue and he has to say, in effect, the church needs to take a form of discipline in dealing with those people so that they feel the bite 
of Paul's rebuke and they understand that what they're doing is wrong. So things have changed between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And as I understand it, um, then we, we need to look at those things in the light of A, what he has already said and what has transpired in the, in the interim between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 in Paul's greeting and thanksgiving and boasting. Notice, notice some changes. Even though the words are similar to what we find in 1st Thessalonians chapter 1 and following, notice the changes in his words in his greeting. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul was clear to give thanks for their salvation, for their perseverance and endurance in the midst of persecution, but he is also very clear to exhort them to grow even more, and that he does in chapter 4 and verse 10. And he prays for the Thessalonians that God would bring about growth and progress, in particular, we could say, in the areas of faith, love, and hope, that they would continue to abound in these ways. What's interesting is when you come to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, he is now praising God and giving thanks for the fact that they have progressed and they have grown. If you can put it in short terms, Paul is is giving evidence to the fact that his prayers have been answered, at least in part. God has already been working in the Thessalonians, and the reports that he has received affirm the fact that these believers, in the midst of all their difficulties, are continuing to grow. That is indeed good news. Now, you also see that in 1 Thessalonians, he praises God, but when you look at the same basic subject in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, he, he adds an element. We ought, we are obligated, he says, to praise God. And this is rightly so, our text says. So now there is this element of, of the need or necessity to do so. Why would that be? Well, we've already seen that they have grown. We know that their growth is the work of God working in the lives of the Thessalonians, and so it's only right to acknowledge and to praise God for what he has done in the lives of of these people. So there is a necessity, I think, of knowing the lives of people, seeing that God is moving them along. And I think when we when we read what Paul says, we tend to put Paul in this separate capacity and say, well, he's an apostle. He's responsible for that. Now, we need to bear in mind that when Paul is talking here about how the Thessalonians have progressed, this is his second missionary journey. There are a number of other churches where Paul has been, some that he has started. So what Paul is saying and doing here is not just true of the Thessalonican church. It is true of churches where he has been. It is true of churches where he has not yet been, like the church in Rome. Paul is one who feels an obligation to know how the saints are doing in various churches in various parts of the world. And I would suggest to you, 
We as Christians are isolationists. Now, I understand the political kind of isolationism that says we can't be the world's policeman and blah, blah, blah. And we could go down that trail for a long ways. Set that one aside. The question is, are Christians to be isolationists with regard to fellow believers in their own church and to fellow believers around the world? Do we have an obligation to know about the persecuted church? Do we have an obligation to know that our brothers and sisters are, are facing certain difficulties? Do we have an obligation like Paul did to pray for them and their spiritual growth? Do we have an obligation to know how it is going in their lives and to praise God for those who are standing fast? I contend we do. I contend we do. And we're not doing very well at it. We are not doing very well at knowing how brothers and sisters are doing in their faith. I'll come back to that a little bit because it has something to do with the way in which we do church or our ecclesiology. Third, in 1 Thessalonians, remember he says that these Thessalonians have embraced the gospel and they have, they, in the midst of their, of their tribulation and yet their faith is thriving and they're rejoicing And Paul says, where we go, the places that I go, I hear reports about you. They tell me about you so that I don't have to tell them about you. They already know. And he says, therefore, there was no need, 1 Thessalonians, no need for me to tell them about you. 2 Thessalonians, he says, it is only right. I ought not only to know, I ought to share What's going on in your church, your Thessalonican church, I ought to share that with others. So why the change? Why the change between I don't need to share it and I ought to share it? And I would suggest it's this. How Christians do in their spiritual walk impacts other believers. How Christians are doing in their spiritual walk in particular when they are living under duress, has a great deal to do with how others will respond to it. Two examples. First of all, Psalm 73. Remember Asaph the psalmist is looking around and he's he's moaning and groaning about how how the bad guys are are living so well and how he's, he's doing so poorly. And then he says, in effect, you know, that I really began to wonder whether I should just chuck it all. He said, my feet were near to slipping. And then he makes this statement, this statement, if I, and I think, I think the essence of it, this is a paraphrase. I think the essence of what he says is, if I had gone public with the thoughts and temptations in my mind, that is to just give up. If I had done that, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. He says to God, if I would have failed in the midst of what I considered my adversity, my failure would have impacted other believers. And that would have been a terrible sin, would it not? So there's this whole matter. And I think that's why when you look at Paul in Philippians chapter 2, where he's already talked about the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, And then he basically says, it is my privilege, as it were, 
to be, he talks about the, the sort of libation, the drink offering that's poured over the sacrifice. It, and maybe that makes sense to us or not. But let's just say Paul is saying, I get to be the icing on your cake. And the icing on Paul's cake, so to speak, is to be able to sacrifice himself for their growth so that others will be benefited. Now go with me to Philippians chapter 1 in your mind. Paul is in prison. His outcome is uncertain. The word of his imprisonment has has drifted out uh, amongst the believers. Some believers have sought to capitalize on Paul's persecution and say, in effect, see, God must not be pleased with Paul. He's not being blessed. He's being punished. Paul said, I don't care. They're still preaching Christ. I'll take the heat. Then he goes on to say, other people, because of my experience and my endurance in the gospel, have been greatly encouraged and emboldened in their faith. So it seems to me that Paul finds it necessary to boast because it praises God. And secondly, because it encourages the saints who are facing similar circumstances or who will It encourages them to maintain their steadfastness in terms of their walk with God. So, how should Paul's words affect us? I think I may rearrange my order here, uh, and I'm going to deal with persecution first. The reality is life is not a cruise. When we read 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, when we read Paul uh, in Acts chapter 14, through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. 2nd Timothy, all who would live godly lives will suffer persecution. Friends, the norm of Christian living is to take the heat for being a Christian. And you and I have not even begun to experience what that means. But there are people today who will literally be meeting in places in the darkness and whatever uh, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They will be meeting in places and in ways we cannot conceive of. A few years ago, there was a a family from Romania that was uh, in our body and, and somebody had come from Romania that was a visitor And I happened to be standing with them when they got together and they had not seen each other for years since they had been together in Romania. And they said to each other, do you remember the last time we were in church? Do you remember the secret police were standing out in front? They were taking our names. I mean, have we ever, ever seen anything like that? So we need to understand the reality is that persecution is the norm. And I believe, and I think most of you sense, it's coming our way, folks. It's coming our way. Because unbelief in Jesus is just a kissing cousin to persecuting those who do believe. It's just going to come, and it's going to come more strongly, I fear, I sense, than we have ever known. And yet that persecution is a blessing. It's part of God's work in our lives to sanctify us. It's part of God's work to show that certain people are worthy of condemnation and other people are worthy of the kingdom, not in the sense that their works have done that, but that God's work through them has shown them to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Eschatology. 
That means that's a fancy $5 seminary word for prophecy and things to come. I have a confession to make. Um, and, and it's Thessalonians that's, that's really put me to the wall on this. I really have a kind of a, a negative fetish about, about prophecy. And I'll tell you for several reasons. One, I am sick and tired of hearing evangelicals throw, seeing evangelicals throw rocks at each other and, and look at, deal with each other like they were heretics because they don't have the same exact view of how the end is going to come. I'm tired of that. And I, don't, I really don't want to get on board that, that whole train. But, Having said that, when I come to Thessalonians, do you notice that virtually everything Paul is, is, is talking about is related to the second coming? He relates persecution to the second coming. He relates sanctification to the second coming. What that says is, and in fact, when I started reading again in, in Paul's other epistles, it's all pointing forward. Even that word calling, and I'm going to get to that later because it's not here. But calling, if I see it correctly, has its past tense, we have been called. But there's a sense in which uh, the present tense verb is used of his, he calls present. And I think then in Philippians, he talks about the upward call. I, I think that everything in the calling of our Lord is pointing us forward. So that in a sense, the finish line is the second coming. Whether you're reading in Hebrews about the race, whatever it is, the finish line is the second coming, and the goal is that we would be found faithful. Is that not true? And so in that sense, you may not need to be rebuked. I do. And that is the second coming and prophecy is vitally important to our spiritual lives. Not all the nitpicky little details and arguments, but the grand picture is there. It's put before us over and over again. We better get, in that sense, we better get a prophetic mindset that everything we are doing now, we ought to see in the light of what God is doing in the future. Prayer. Wow. You know, I I read Paul's epistles. He's praying all the time. (laughs) He's praying for their growth. He's praising God for how they're doing. He is really informed. Now, look, he doesn't have Twitter or tweet or (laughs) whatever he's got. He didn't have any of that stuff. It takes months for letters to get from one place to another. He knows far more about the believers in any one city than we know about the believers sitting next to us. Now, that, that, that ought to say something to us, should it not? Paul is saying, to me at least, I need to, I need to be sensitive to what my brother and sister in this body and outside of this body, how they are doing and whether they are growing. If they are growing, I need to be, I need to be praising God. If they are under duress, I need to be praying and petitioning that God would, would be working. Here's another thing. Paul tells, he not only prays for people, he tells them he's praying for them. Now, how many times, I must ask myself, how many times If I come up to one of you and said, you know what? I've been praying for you. And here's what it is. Boy, that can get spooky sometimes, I might add. Sometimes people are praying for the wrong things, and thank goodness God doesn't have to hear it. But most of us ought to be saying things like, you know, I'm praising God 
for the way in which you've responded to this adversity in your life. I know that these are difficult times. I'm praying that God would give you faith and courage and boldness in that situation. I want you to know I'm praying for you. And as Paul says, I'm praying for you all the time. Not, you know, once a month he gets to them on the list. Constantly praying for them. Well, I saved the best part for last. Ecclesiology, how we do church. I believe that the way in which we do church is vital. And I would say that in many churches, not all, in many churches, their ecclesiology is built on the cruise ship model. You got a shopping mall in a cruise ship. At least ours did. You know, you got 15 jillion different places to eat. Um, you've got all of these wonderful choices, and, it, and it's just sort of a warm and, and fuzzy kind of thing, uh, and everybody's taking care of you, cruise ship mentality. I was thinking about during uh, the hurricane as, as Earl was, was beginning to barrel down on the East Coast, and I noticed in the news a, a, an article, a note that said that they have redirected 15 cruise ships or whatever it was, some number. And I suspect there's a batch of them out there, but they're all heading from the storm. Suppose that we're not a cruise ship, but a Coast Guard ship. See, you'd have to build that ship a little differently, would you not? Would the model for a, for a Coast Guard ship not be different? I suspect you wouldn't have a swimming pool on the deck and, you know, 15,000 restaurants and whatever. You're probably going to build that ship to handle rough seas. And, and so uh, I must confess, I, I, getting away from the rescue ship, I, I, I'm thinking this. Is the church a cruise ship or a battleship? Is the church a cruise ship or a battleship? And I fear that the way in which we're tempted to go is the cruise ship mentality and, and that our cruise ship offers more restaurants and shopping malls than yours does. And I just have to say to you, I don't think it works that way. And I will say this. The way the New Testament church was to operate is the only way I know of that works everywhere in the world, in every culture, at any period of time. Only the New Testament model will do that. Others come and go depending on where you are and how rich you are and a few other things. The New Testament church is the best model. And the New Testament church is by far the superior model for the persecuted church. When you go to China or you go somewhere else where the church is outlawed, you will find a church that is very much like the church Paul describes or the New Testament describes, the church that is in their house. Now, don't misunderstand me. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, the Christians met in the temple, big meeting, and from house to house, right? But... When it comes to times of persecution, don't plan on meeting at the temple. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You're going to find yourself meeting in house to house. And I would say this. When you're dealing, if you are responsible to know what's going on in the life of, of your uh, fellow believer, that won't be done in a huge auditorium looking at the back of somebody else's neck. Now, teaching can happen that way. And, and I'm not saying there's no occasion where that will take place. I'm saying even the megachurches understand that real ministry takes place in small groups. 
And, and so I'm going to beat the drum for just a moment about ministry groups, what we do here. Even though we're not a huge church and even though our meeting as we gather together is the opportunity and most of us know at least something about one another, it's not good enough. If you want to be able to do the things that Paul says Christians ought to do, then there is no other way to do that than to do it in a context of a small group of people who knows each other intimately, who prays and exhorts and does all of the things that the Scriptures say we ought to do. So, yeah, you know, I'm hot on, on New Testament church order, but I'm hot on it because it's right, and I'm hot on it because it's the only system that works. I think I already mentioned this, but just think about, for example, the persecuted church uh, in some portion of the world, if you had a, a, a mega church with one dynamic leader in North Korea, how long would it take them to put that church under? One bullet. One bullet. It's done. When you have a church with multiple leaders and multiple gifted people ministering to one another, you're going to have a hard time putting the church down, folks, because the church is all of us. I know in politics, everybody's been talking about we the people. Well, folks, we're the body. We're the body. The church is us. And Thessalonians is addressed to us to start thinking differently about persecution, about prayer, about the way we do church, and about the future. May God grant us the grace to do it. Father, thank you for uh, these epistles. May we take them to heart. May you challenge us. Help us not to be a cruise ship. Help us to be a, a battleship, a hospital ship, someone that's serving you. Help us all to do our part. Give us grace. Give us perseverance as difficult days come upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.